Well, good morning and welcome. It's great to see everyone here this morning. For those of you I don't know, my name is Deirdre Chance. I'm part of the ministry team here at Twin Cities Church. And thanks to the elders, I get to come up here periodically throughout the year and preach to you. And this morning when I saw everyone coming in, I was like, wow, because secretly I was kind of like, you know, I hope with the weather nobody's there because this is a hard text. (laughs) I'd be a lot more comfortable if it was just like my husband and my daughter there. But here you are. (laughs) And so I guess welcome. But, you know, if we're honest, it is. This is a hard text. Well, I just read about God hardening someone's heart. And I think it's okay. In fact, I think it might even be good if we're agitated by texts like these. In fact, there's a British literary theorist and critic who once noted that societies become secular, not when they dispense with religion altogether, but when they are no longer especially agitated by it. But I think, you know, if we're honest, most of us, as modern people, we don't really like this text. You know, and as I was reflecting on it, I was thinking, you know, maybe... Maybe other cultures would be drawn to a text like this, a text with an image of God like this, you know, a culture that maybe prized bravery and brute strength. The first culture that came to my mind was the Vikings. You know, that might have been an image that they would really be drawn to. But for us, as people of modern contemporary society, I don't think we're especially drawn to this image of God, a God who's described as hardening people's hearts. You know, and as I keep chewing on that and meditating on that, I thought, you know, maybe that's a a support that God isn't just a construct of human imagination and longing. Because if he were just something we made up, why would we make up a God we don't like, that we're not drawn to? Um, And this image of God, you know, sort of a wrathful, punishing, hardening of hearts, I don't think it's just our culture. Sure, there'd probably be some cultures that would be drawn to this. But a lot of cultures like our own, you know, is kind of repulsed, kind of finds this offensive. And again, the fact that that God, you know, it just seems logical that if we think of all the ways God is described throughout the Bible, maybe the easy texts that we're drawn to and the harder ones, seems like if I'm just operating in logic, seems logical then that God extends above human culture. He's super cultural, if you would. Because again, if he's a construct of human imagination, it doesn't seem like we would have texts that we don't necessarily find ourselves attracted to. But before we jump in too much into the text, um, just as an overview, in each of the ten plagues, as well as before. Both texts that Wole read happened before any of the plagues happened. And then even after the plagues, after Israel is set free, again and again it says there's a statement about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Sometimes the text says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In fact, most often it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then other times it's just sort of neutral. It just states, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And I think I agree with scholars that there's really no semantical difference 
between those different statements. It's just a variation to state the same meaning. And so it's a difficult text just for us as modern people, but it's also the source of endless theological debate. Was Pharaoh exercising free will here? Or was he a puppet that God was pulling the strings on and then God was punishing him for his puppet performance? Robert Alter, who is a renowned Hebrew scholar, he's a professor out at Berkeley. He leads up the Center for Jewish Studies. He has a three-volume set of the translation of the Old Testament. Like, he is the expert in ancient Hebrew language. If you want a good translation of the Hebrew Bible, Robert Alter is your guy to go to. I don't have his three volumes. I just have the Pentateuch. <laughs> but he says that really, in his expertise of understanding the Hebrew language, that to think of Pharaoh as a puppet is really too crude of an interpretation. Pharaoh wasn't an innocent bystander here who God suddenly zapped and hardened his heart. For generations, Pharaoh and his father and his regime had enslaved and persecuted a minority immigrant community and killed, murdered their infant children just to exert his power and control over them. And God never hardened Pharaoh's heart until the Israelites groan and cry out for relief from their suffering, from their enslavement, from the murder of their infant sons. And that sinful tendency that kind of attaches to like, right, what Lawrence was uh, saying in the welcome, that's at work in most <laughs> powerful government leaders. When one finds themselves as one of the world's most powerful leaders, there's this sinful tendency within them to want to enslave, to want to keep that power and control, right? It's, it's addictive. And God just takes that sinful tendency that is in, that's already being exhibited in Pharaoh, and he flips it. He flips it to now subjugate Pharaoh to himself. If we meditate and chew on it, this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it can also be translated as um, making Pharaoh's heart stubborn. God isn't really doing anything new here to Pharaoh. He's just extending and furthering what we already see being exhibited in Pharaoh. And that kind of leads us to our second point with the text. God is showing his power and omnipotence over Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart had the specific purpose of humiliating Egyptian gods. One of which, right, Pharaoh was considered. Pharaoh was considered a god. And God is humiliating him to reveal that Yahweh is the true God in order to increase the glory and the exaltation given to the true God. And if it's true, if it's true that Yahweh is the true God and Pharaoh isn't, this is fair for God to do. It's like an example of identity theft. If someone's parading around pretending to be dear to chance, it's good for me to use whatever in my power and control to show to prove 
No, I am the real Deirdre Chance. And that's what Yahweh is doing here. Pharaoh, you are not God. I am the true God. And it's also likely that one of the reasons that God chooses to harden the heart, to make stubborn Pharaoh's heart, is that it's specifically designed to an Egyptian or to somebody who would be immersed in Egyptian culture and religion. And you might know this. I can, I can still picture this, even though I can't quite figure out where it was in my upbringing. My guess is high school. If you've ever studied Egyptian religion, I, th- I remember like watching some video where they have like the Egyptian deity and his head is a dog, and when you die, you descend into the afterlife, and there's a river and a boat, and you're weighed. The heart was crucial. The weighing of the heart was crucial to Egyptian religion and culture, right? Like sometimes we divide out religion and culture. It wasn't like that for most of antiquity. So to an Egyptian, hardening the heart was very significant. It would call to the mind of someone who was immersed in that Egyptian religion and culture. Well, let me back up. If somebody's getting their heart hardened or stubborn, it would call to, or making it more stubborn, it would call to your mind that that person's heart is not infallible. It is not divine or pure. It is able to be corrupted. It does have a propensity for sin. Right? So according to Egyptian religion, like when you die and you go to the afterlife, your heart, called the ib in Egyptian, it would be weighed. And if your heart was found wanting or lacking, you'd go to the equivalent of Egyptian hell, Hades. If it was found pure, you would go on to a human afterlife. And so the weighing or evaluating of the heart by the gods at a time of a person's death was really reserved for only a god. And remember, Pharaoh was supposed to be a god. He was supposed to be a pure person. That was the reason, right, why all the Egyptians were supposed to do whatever he said and be under his sovereignty because he was a god. So the idea that Yahweh could do whatever he wanted with Pharaoh's heart was both an evidence of Yahweh's control over all things, including the seemingly most powerful monarch at the time who claimed to be God, And again, it was also evidence that Yahweh had done what Egyptians thought only gods could do, have preeminence to judge and weigh the heart. God had reduced the supposedly divine Pharaoh to a level of being a mere mortal, easily manipulated, possessing no divine purity at all. God is publicly disgracing Pharaoh and putting him to open shame as a god. And if Yahweh is the true God and Pharaoh is not a God, it's fair. He's revealing what's fair here. But still, if we're honest, if you're like me, you still don't really like this idea of believing in a God who hardens people's hearts and then punishes them, who controls destinies that lie outside of humans and then punishes them. And I think we live in this tension. Because on the one hand, we want to be in control. We want to be in control of our destinies. We want to be in control of our facilities. We want to be in control of our gender identification. That's very 
hot subject now. We certainly want to be in control of our hearts. I want to think I have control over my hearts. But then there's this tension because we love a good story with a character that's controlled with a destiny that's outside of themselves. Controlled by a destiny that's outside of themselves and bigger than them and more um, purposeful, and they can't escape it. You know, if I try to think of stories like that, Star Wars pops right into my mind. Anakin, the mom doesn't know where he comes from. Luke as well. They're born into something. They're born into something with a destiny that they can't get out of. It's bigger than them. Harry Potter, when Rebecca, my daughter, and I have time, you know, just a mere three-hour chunk in the evenings, I've been trying to watch through that series, right? Harry Potter is like that too. They're in the crib. He can't be destroyed by the one who shall not be named. <laughs> He's drawn into something bigger through trials, through near death, through death. It's something bigger than him that he can't avoid. It's part of his destiny. And we love those stories. We love those stories because we all, there's something in us that wants to be part of something bigger than ourselves. But being bigger, you know, is part of that something bigger than ourselves a God who hardens hearts and then punishes people? You know, it's kind of along the same lines. We'll see next week. He kills all the firstborn. Actually, that's already been introduced in chapter 4 as well. A God who would send people to hell. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, that destiny that's inescapable. But this image of God, you know, it's not really a matter of God controlling our destiny. I think it's an issue with this image of God. We don't like a wrathful, judgmental image of God. I mean, wrath and eternal condemnation, that doesn't cause me to feel good or most people in our modern culture to feel good. I don't like to share that with people. We tend to write avoid or distance ourselves from things that cause us distress. The last time I was up here preaching, I introduced this concept that this perception, worldview, if you will, moralistic, therapeutic deism. This idea that what really drives us in our modern contemporary culture is self-fulfillment, that we just want to feel good. That's what we think. Self-actualization, that's the most important thing. And to think of a God who would put demands on us, who would exhibit control and wrath, that's hard. More often, I think we're comfortable with an image of God like a grandfather, right? Like a Santa Claus type image. What's your image of God when you pray? Is it this weaker, gentler image that will grant your outcomes in good forms? I think we do well to just pause and to think. Do we have any misconceptions? Do we have any biases? What image of God do you want? And why? And where do you get the image of God that you have from? Uh, Mirsalav Volf, 
if you've ever heard of him, he's written the book. Um, he writes about exclusion in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He's a professor at Yale University. Lawrence studied under him. I think maybe Becky and Lawrence went to church with him for a time. Um, he's very deep philosophical thinker. I would really recommend him. But he proposed, oh, and he, this is an important thing. <laughs> he lived in Croatia during the 1990s, during the ethnic cleansings that happened in Croatia. And he writes the book, Exclusion and Embrace, which I just love that title, Exclusion and Embrace. But so he writes um, in that book that the practice, that if we adhere to the practice of nonviolence, it requires a belief in divine vengeance. He puts forth the logic that if victims of violence don't believe in God or in a God who will bring punishment, vengeance at the right time, then the victims have no reason not to unleash vengeance, revenge for themselves. Wolf concludes that the only way to prohibit recourse to violence by ourselves is to fully believe that God alone has that right and that he will square away all accounts someday. You know, and if you interact with people of different cultures, right, the great, one of the beauties of that is as we interact with people of different cultures, suddenly we can see biases that we didn't even know were there. What is our image of God, and where do we get it from? The Bible states that Jesus is the clear image of God. Jesus states, as recorded in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1 states that Jesus is the exact imprint of God and is the radiance of God's glory through whom the world was made. Colossians 1, which we study so often in House Church, Jesus is the image of the invisible God in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If we're not sure who God is, we can look to Jesus. Jesus allows us to see God with all his wrath and with all his judgment reconciled with all his grace and mercy and forgiveness. At the cross, Jesus became sin. He became the intentional sin we commit. He became the evil external sin at work in the world, the fallenness, the corruption of this created world. And God sacrificed, God the Father sacrificed God the Son on the cross so that the wrath of God could be fully satisfied. And as Jesus resurrected and demonstrated his ultimate power over sin, over evil, over the curse, over Satan and all demonic powers, when he resurrected from the dead, not only was God's wrath fully satisfied, but grace and forgiveness and mercy could be extended to all people for all time. In fact, I would submit to you that because of the wrath of God being satisfied at the cross, grace and mercy and forgiveness could be extended for all time, for all people. God's wrath and judgment and God's grace and forgiveness and mercy aren't two different ends of the spectrum. They're connected and they're intertwined. 
at the cross we clearly see, if we clearly understand the cross and the enormity of it, everything else is in its shadow. We understand the power of the cross. Not a weak, grandfatherly image of God. We understand that God's powerful wrath is connected to his love and forgiveness. But we also see more at the cross. We don't just see salvation from hell and eternal damnation at the cross. At the cross, we see the exaltation and the glorification of God. We understand that the exaltation of God is what brings about God's righteousness and justice here on earth now. The kingdom of God is here. We dwell now in the kingdom of God on earth now. And that's also what we see in this passage today. Like this passage in Exodus, it wasn't just about the Israelites being delivered from their slavery. It wasn't just about their salvation, as wonderful as that is. But if that's all that God was getting after in this passage was Israel's deliverance and salvation, he would have done it on day one. Forget about all this business of hardening Pharaoh's heart and all the plagues. But God had something even bigger. He had his greater glory and exaltation. That was the bigger picture. And deliverance and righteousness and justice will come about as a result of that. Um, Again, the verses that Wole read says, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and I will bring my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. With God's judgment, greater glory and exaltation is given to Yahweh, the true God. In Christ, we as believers have a new source of power. We have a new reality that we can operate in. And that gives us a new identity. If it's true, as Colossians 1 says, that Jesus Christ reconciled all things in heaven and on earth to God the Father through the shed blood of his cross, making peace, then we have a new source of power. We have a source of power that's better than our predictable idols, right? Like sometimes we're drawn to those idols because we can control them. We can predict them. And it makes us a little nervous when we can't predict God, when we can't control God. But he's better. You know, whatever we look to, George talked last week about how we can look to money, right, as our source of power, of our source of glory, of what we're going to put our hope in. Sometimes, especially women, you know, we may put it in our relationships, our marriages, our families. We can look to that and think, that will make me happy. But in Christ, we have a new and a better source of power. We have a new reality, a new identity. If it's true, if Jesus is that true and ultimate source of power, it gives us a new way of understanding, of even understanding ourselves, right? On the cross, Jesus became our sin, that internal, intentional sin, the external, the curse, 
He overcame Satan. He took all that on so that when we have faith in his resurrection, we take on his identity of righteousness. That's why texts like Colossians 3 talks about our life being hidden in Christ. He took on our identity of fallenness, corruption, the curse, and sin, so that by faith in his resurrection over all those things, we take on that identity. We are seen as the righteousness of Christ, which is mind-blowing and scandalous. (laughs) Um, Our house church happens to be going through Colossians 3, 1 through 17 right now. And in the commentary section, George writes, As Jesus' victory has secured eternal peace, those who believe in Jesus can appropriate his power over all sin. Sin has been rendered powerless and forgiven. Therefore, we don't have to be controlled by our own sins or other sins against us. We don't have to remain angry with others or seek vengeance. And even when we feel the effects of sin, peace is possible. Jesus has forgiven, and Jesus will avenge in the end on Judgment Day when his victory over Satan, sin, and death is fully realized. When our minds, right? Colossians 3 also talks about when we set our minds on things above, when we deepen in our understanding of who who we are in Christ. When we believe that by faith and see that as a reality, that is who I am. I am the beloved of God. If I believe that's who I am by faith in Christ, I am redeemed. I am reconciled to God the Father. When we know that's who we are, that we have the righteousness of Christ, right? We leave behind those earthly idols that just steal, kill, and destroy. And we live in the power of the gospel. We as Christians, we don't have to lie. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to deceive to try to compensate for the weaknesses and shortcomings and sins that we know are there. We don't have to seek sexual immorality or longings that are ultimately harmful and evil. We don't have to live under this false facade that we're in control and everything's on our shoulders. We can rejoice that God is in control and we can experience peace. We can extend peace. As we abide in our identity in Christ and the power of the gospel, we increasingly have the power to overcome, to overcome destructive habits, immaturities, brokenness, trauma, just insecurities. We have the power to increasingly experience peace in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, with our neighbors, in our church, in those we're ministering to, in our jobs. We have the power to cut off destructive habits, and we have the power to put on peace. Right? We have the power to put on other-centeredness because we know the grace and forgiveness that was extended to us. When we know we're seen as the beloved, that we're chosen, 
and that love of Christ controls us. We extend that. It over, you can't keep it in. It overflows out of us. But we all know like it takes that renewal. It takes that deepening, that setting our mind on things above. You know, I, I see that in my own life, that as I abide in Christ and meditate and remind myself who I am. I used to tell this to my students at New Life. I would be like, you know, it says in Ephesians 1 about how I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. But do I walk around my day going, well, hello, I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm? Or do I walk around thinking, I'm depressed. I, this is hard. You know, like, what you put in, what you fill up, that's what overcomes, right? So abiding and meditating in Christ. And when we do fail, when we do sin, right? It's, we are the righteousness of Christ, but God is taking us through a process so that our experience will match what his statement, his unconditional statement about us will be true. But so when we do fail, because I know that the wrath of God has been fully satisfied at the cross, I know I'm not condemned. I know I'm forgiven. And so I don't have to, again, lie, deceive, or manipulate. I can apologize because I'm secure in my identity in Christ. If others sin against me, I can extend that same love and forgiveness to them that I have received, because that's ultimately what I want. I want them to experience God. I want to experience God. And as we abide in Christ and set our minds on the things above, not only do we experience, increasingly experience Christ's power, but God is exalted and the power of his righteousness and justice will go forth. Again, our goal is not just immediate, quick deliverance and salvation. As wonderful as that is to be delivered from whatever enslaves us, right? That's what we sometimes see the Israelites overly focused on, their immediate deliverance. As wonderful that, as that is, our focus, our meditation is on the exaltation of God in his ways, which deliverance will fit into, which righteousness will come about, justice will come about. So just as you walk through your week over the next week and your choices that you navigate, ask yourself, what is my goal in this interaction? Is your goal simply to accomplish something on your agenda? Or is it to abide in Christ's power and to see God exalt it? And to trust that God indeed will be exalted. And this is an opportunity to join him in that as you abide in him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you that you have given us a new power, a new reality, a new identity, that we can cut off the sins that so easily enslave and turn and put on the power of Christ thanks to Christ's resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would increasingly strengthen us through your indwelling spirit, 
through your word, through the church, to understand how to push this out in the day-to-day of our lives so that you will and that we can join you in the increasing exaltation and glory of you, Lord. Thank you that one day, and we look forward to this day, when Christ will return and the glory and exaltation of God and the feast of the bride and the bridegroom of Christ and his church will be fulfilled. We look forward to that day and we pray for wisdom as we wait and as we watch. And we pray all these things through Jesus Christ's name.